0: Good morning, Gold Avenue Church. On this very, very cold Sunday morning, I believe the Lord has a message for us that will set our hearts ablaze with love and with passion for His name. And So let's turn to Him in prayer, and then let's open His Word. Father, we remember that the the psalmist wrote, For You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And Father, we need to acknowledge before you this morning that we can't always say with the psalmist, we know that full well. And so we pray that you would move among us and within us by the power of your Holy Spirit to establish us deeper in the significance that we have as fearfully and wonderfully made in your image through this message. I pray for your empowerment upon me as I preach, and for all of us as we listen and respond to you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, church family, we're carrying on in our Go and Make Disciples sermon series, And we are on thought unit number six, which reads, Removed from the presence of a loving God who will not dwell with anything impure and consigned to eventual death, we've lost so much. Disconnected from our Heavenly Father and no longer aware of our intrinsic value, we live as orphans seeking to find or create an identity For ourselves. And our scripture text this morning comes from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, that's Babylon, and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If there's one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. God's Word. Thanks be to God. In his spiritual autobiography, From Slavery or Spiritual Slavery to Spiritual Sonship, the late Jack Frost tells the story of how he almost came to be the captain and owner of a fleet of fishing ships. Jack has wanted nothing more than to be a successful fisherman since childhood. He's worked and worked, and he's finally getting noticed. An older man, Captain Klein, takes a liking to him and invites Jack to work one of his boats, starting as a second mate. Jack agrees, and he throws himself wholeheartedly into the task of cleaning, preparing, fishing, and maintaining the boats. The first to start and the last to leave Jack's work ethic and results are noticed by Captain Klein, who promotes him to first mate and begins to talk to him about a promising future. As Jack works closer with the captain, the captain takes more and more of a liking to him, finally sharing with Jack that he's never had a son himself, but that he's coming to view Jack like a son. He shares, Jack If you'll work patiently with me, I'll teach you everything I know. And when the time is right, I'll give you my fleet of ships and you can take over for me. Well, Jack is elated. This is more than he's dreamed of. As Captain Klein releases more and more of his secrets to Jack, Jack works feverishly and his results improve almost daily. Each week, he pulls in more and more grouper, climbing the local fisherman's charts until he's on top as the number one hook, the most successful grouper fisherman in all of southeast Florida. Now far more people than Captain Klein are noticing Jack, and several of them begin trying to recruit him to fish for them. Initially, Jack, he rebuffs them, sharing Captain Klein's promise to him. But finally, one man promises Jack, Immediate captaincy of his best boat. Well, Jack takes this offer back to Captain Klein, telling him he doesn't want to leave and asking, Captain, can you fulfill your promise to me now? Can you release the boats and the captaincy to me? Can you give me the inheritance you promised? With a heavy heart, Captain Klein explains, I'd love to. But because my wife is seriously ill, I still need the money and I can't transition just yet. Jack feels like Captain Klein is putting him off and isn't going to keep his promise. And so hardening his heart, he quits and takes the job he's been offered. Then in a brutal move, Jack takes his new boat to all the secret fishing holes that Captain Klein has shared with him. Using Captain Klein's gifts and Captain Klein's knowledge to make a name for himself, Jack's fame continues to rise, even as he breaks Captain Klein's heart. It isn't until years later that Jack's able to sit down with Captain Klein and apologize, sharing that his own sense of personal insignificance had been driving him toward the captaincy. Jack hadn't needed more money, and Captain Klein hadn't specified a time frame for his retirement and when he would promote Jack. It was the simple, yet substantial fact that Jack was insecure and couldn't pass up on the opportunity to try to prove himself. Insecurity, a sense of insignificance, of needing to find or to prove one's worth, is a powerful force. It's a force that was unleashed the moment we were driven from the Garden of Eden and removed from the security of God's presence. It's a force that drives the vast majority of human behavior to this day, and it is the driving motive or force behind this Tower of Babel story that we just read. At this point in the biblical story, the human family speaks one language, and the text says that as they move eastward, they find a plane and begin to settle it. They say to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And that they use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. The implication, perhaps, being that they're inventing new technologies. Then they say, Come, let's build a city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. And actually, at first glance, things look quite positive here. The human community is working together. There's a unity which we'd expect to be pleasing to God. And it's not just a unity, but actually an industriousness. They're building. They're discovering new technologies They're using their common language to work together toward a shared purpose. This could be really beautiful. And yet, as God comes near to inspect their progress, he doesn't seem pleased at all. God says, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. And it almost appears... But God doesn't want his image bearers or he doesn't wish them success as they work together to create things. It might sound a little puzzling if the author of Genesis hadn't given us some insight into their motivation for building. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. You catch that? Fear is at work here. They don't want to be scattered. In Genesis 1, God gives the mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. Well, filling the earth requires spreading out across it, dividing Not in a a disunifying sense, but in a willingness to separate from those you love in order to obey God sense. And yet these people don't want to spread out. They're afraid of what's out there. Afraid of what they might face. Afraid that they won't have what it takes on their own for a secure future. And so they look to each other for comfort. And strength. If we just stay together, if we consolidate our resources and build up a strong city, we'll be safe and strong. Removed from God's presence, they believe they need to protect and provide for themselves in much the same way that orphans do with nobody to look out for an orphan, they're on their own, they're afraid. And that fear is leading these people to disobey God's mandate to fill and subdue. And yet even more than being motivated by fear, it seems these people are driven by an emptiness, by a sense of personal and corporate insignificance. Let's build a tower, they say, so big that people will notice. We'll make a name for ourselves. We'll be something special. People will think we're great and strong and maybe we'll believe we're great and strong too. Now they've taken it a step further. They aren't just trying to consolidate the resources and protect themselves from what's out there. Now they're trying to prove to themselves and others just how significant and sufficient they really are. If we can build this tower so that it reaches the heavens, just think about how famous we'll become. Everyone will not only notice what we've built, but they'll have to be impressed. They'll not only respect us in our strength, but they'll also look up to us. If only we can build this tower, we'll be strong, well-known, respected and protected. And the most amazing thing I think about this story is God's response. When God comes down to view their building progress he says if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. In other words God doesn't laugh or scoff at their attempts toward greatness. God doesn't say, who do you think you are? You can't do that. In fact, just the opposite. God affirms their ability to do something great, saying nothing will be impossible for them. But then he says, we'd better do something to put a stop to this. Well, why? Because God understands that when we build things out of fear and self-preservation. And when we build things to draw attention to ourselves, these things only crumble in the end. These things can't hold the weight of our expectations. Anything outside of God that we ask to protect us and to give us a sense of significance is destined to fail us. Whether it's the the job that we throw ourselves into, like Jack, or whether it's our identity as a certain kind of parent or grandparent, whether it's the clothes we wear, the group we belong to, or even the ministries we build and the spiritual gifts we exercise. Anything that we ask to give us a sense of security and significance, will fail us. Only God, only God can give each of us what our orphaned hearts long for. Only God can meet our deep need for security and significance, for protection and care. And so God, in His infinite wisdom and mercy, does what only the best of parents would do. He pulls the rug out from under our attempts to build things that will not fulfill our deepest needs. He thwarts us. In this case, he confuses their language so that, not being able to understand each other, they're forced to stop building the thing that they're asking to give them, protection, and significance. And God causes them to begin to scatter across the earth, which is actually providing a context for them to be able to obey his creation mandate of filling and subduing, if only they would notice what he's doing and be willing. Well, friends, in our lives, God does the same. He thwarts desires that we have when we're placing too much weight on them. Sometimes it's the case that we've got genuinely good and holy desires, like desires for marriage, for children, like certain career aspirations or ministry dreams or hobbies or, or desires for our friendships. But we take these good and holy things and we ask them to bear too much weight. We look to them for a sense of completeness, of wholeness, of security, of significance, of protection, and God who knows our hearts intimately, God who longs for our deepest fulfillment more than we do, and who knows we will not find it in any of these things, God thwarts us because he loves us. Now I want to say that not every unmet desire should be attributed to God thwarting us. We live in a broken world, we've got broken bodies, and there is a lot more at work in this world than just God. However, if our plans and our desires go unmet, if we experience seasons of confusion, of feeling scattered or driven away from something we desire to have or build, it's worth asking, God, are you in any way trying to communicate with me about how I'm looking or how we're looking for security, significance, and protection outside of you. God isn't thwarting these people in Genesis 11 because he doesn't want them to achieve greatness. He's thwarting them because he longs for their greatness and because true greatness comes only in yielding to and fulfilling God's purposes in making God's name great. The emptiness in us that leads to seeking affirmation and attention outside of God will always leave us looking for more. But the affirmation and attention that God, as our Heavenly Father, gives will fill us in a flowing over, unending sort of way. This is in part what Jesus meant when on the last day of the feast in Jerusalem, John records him as standing up and crying out, If anybody's thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams or rivers of living water will flow from within him. An unending, filling, overfilling source is Jesus. Jesus also says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In other words, Jesus came and his desire is to reconnect us to God as Father who gives all significance and all protection and all purpose. Jesus' kingdom mission is to restore all things. And so Jesus shares our humanity. Jesus dies in our place. Jesus rises to new life. Jesus gives us his spirit so that we never have to live outside the presence of God again. So that we never have to live in fear of what's out there. So that we never have to live in self-protective mode. So that we never have to doubt our significance or value. And so as the Apostle Paul declares this good news to a Colossian church who's being tempted to look beyond Jesus for comfort and significance, he writes, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given or brought to fullness in him who's the head over every power and authority. Let me read that again. For in Christ, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. And you, you have been given or you've been brought to fullness in Him who's the head over every power and authority. Friends, in Jesus Christ, we are complete. We're brought to fullness in Him. We lack nothing. We lack no provision. We lack no significance. We never lack God's presence All that we lost as we were removed from the garden is restored in Jesus Christ. We're brought to fullness or completeness. There's nothing missing. There's nothing to prove. There's nothing to be afraid of. We don't have to ask for an inheritance like Jack. We already have it. And it's immeasurably greater than any of us could ask or imagine. This is in part what Paul's trying to get across to the Corinthians who, though they're in Christ, are still stuck in an orphan mentality, comparing and competing, Paul says, So then, no more boasting about people. All things are yours. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Peter, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. Friends, this is incredible. Everything is yours, says Paul. Everything. Why? Why? Because you're joined to Jesus Christ and everything is His. This is so amazing. It's so comprehensive, this grace of God, that it makes provision for our every need and some. Mercy, forgiveness, cleansing, healing, fresh purpose, full significance, equal value, full protection, full provision, continual presence. It's all yours in Jesus. You've been brought to fullness and there's nothing missing. Only learn to trust and receive all that God longs to give. Friends, it's only as we come to grips with this amazing inheritance through Jesus that we are filled with a true desire to make His name great, that we no longer mind being scattered to fulfill God's purposes. This is exactly what happens to the church in Acts 2 and following, as the Holy Spirit is poured out and the language barriers transcended, unity is restored. God creates one new human family in Jesus Christ where the distinctions of Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, they don't matter anymore. Everyone is brought to fullness. Each one is washed of their sins. Each one's cleansed by the love of God. Each one's filled with the Holy Spirit. And this new unified human family is now willing to be scattered across the earth to fill it and to subdue it with the gospel of Jesus Christ declaring the name of Jesus, making his name great and building his kingdom. They're empowered to face fearful events and uncertain times because they aren't alone. And they have nothing to prove except the greatness of God. Friends, this is what the Lord desires for us, His church. Unified, uncertain but unafraid. Empowered for the greatness of making His name great. And so toward that end, I want to leave you, I want to conclude this message with these four questions that I believe the Lord would invite each of us to reflect on with Him in the coming days. Here they are. Number one, how might fear or self-preservation be shaping our decision-making? Two, how might we be looking outside of God for affirmation of our value and significance? Three, Are we willing to be scattered in order to fulfill God's new creation gospel mandate? For will we build things for the sole purpose of making God's name great? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your love for us is so deep that you thwart us. We thank you that you do not allow us to find satisfaction in those things that cannot give it, that you are constantly at work in this world, but especially in our lives, to draw us toward you, toward what you've done through Jesus, and to fill us to overflowing, not only with your love, but with awe, with worship, with the knowledge of what you've given us, and you even intend for us greatness. The greatness that comes from making your name great. And so, Father, we pray in the days and the weeks ahead that you would... oh, that you would... Root and establish us afresh in Jesus, in the gospel, in the inheritance that we have in him, that you would fill us afresh with zeal for making his and your name great, that you would cause us to be so yielded to you as individuals and as a church that we would gladly and willingly say, Stratter us. Do what you will with us. Make your name great through us. We love you, Lord. We love you. We just offer ourselves to you afresh and pray this in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.